Good morning and welcome. Thank you for being with us this morning. My name is Craig Thompson. I'm the senior pastor here. And it is our privilege to have you gathered with us this morning as we've come together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ here. Uh, there are a lot of you here this morning. So hopefully y'all can uh, uh, get a little bit of breathing room. It's not quite as, as full uh, once the kids leave, but a lot of you here really thank you so much for making us a part of your week and for joining with us today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Proverbs chapter 3 in just a minute. Proverbs chapter 3, while you're turning, um, I want to remind you that uh, just a few weeks ago, our church voted to move forward with uh, pursuing a, a sort of a ministry plan, a vision plan, a refocus plan. And one of those goals that we have is to really double down on our efforts to engage in international missions. We are blessed right now to have um, our, our, some of our international missionaries here with us for another month or so. I want to give you just an idea. If you've got any interest at all in what it might be like uh, to, um, to serve the Lord in, uh, in a foreign country, um, I would encourage you to, to look into your uh, bulletin. There's information about what Luke and Patty will be doing and where they'll be spending their time, Luke and Patty Talbert. Uh, there's a women's brunch on the 17th. Luke is preaching next Sunday again here. Um, we figured if we had him, we might as well use him for all we could get out of him. And then next Wednesday night on July the 21st, Luke and Patty together will be sharing um, with, uh, with all of you that will show up about what it is that they do uh, there in lot, what their ministry looks like. So I would just encourage you to take those opportunities uh, as, as they are in front of you, all right? You can see other things that are listed in the bulletin. I would, I would ask you to especially be in prayer for our students. Our teenagers will be leaving for camp in the morning, so pray <clears throat> that they would have safety as they travel. I'll be going with them so y'all can pray for me too uh, because they are mean to me while we're gone normally. They, they robbed me of sleep and of joy and of all the things that are good in life. So, I'm just kidding. They're not like a black hole, but they might be. I'm not sure. It's supposed to be funny. Nobody's laughing. All right. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I do love our teenagers. That's why I go. Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 1. Y'all stand with me in honor of God's word, if you would. Thank you again for being with us. If you're a guest this morning, really and truly, thank you so much for taking time to be, be here. Here now, for this is the word of the Lord. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that this word, we know that it's living and active because you've told us so. I pray that, Lord, we would experience the life of this word. That, Father God, it would give us wisdom, that it would give us life. That, Father God, we'd know more of you, more of ourselves, Lord God, and we'd find ourselves surrendering more to your ways. We'd be more directed by your spirit. Be with us and guide us, God. Give us life from this word in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been working through the Bible, for those of you who have been with us, if you're new to us this morning, let me just let you know, we've been working through the Bible together as a church body, so we've been started in January with um, Genesis, and we've been slowly trying to read our way through the Bible. So for those of you that are keeping up, we're reading through it together, I'm preaching through it, and we're trying to enjoy that experience. It's, it's, uh, it's a bit overwhelming. If this is the first time you've ever tried to read through the Bible in a year, it's, it's a lot to take in. As you try to find that pace. But we find ourselves, last few weeks we've been in the book of Psalms. And today we're in the Proverbs. And if you know much about the Proverbs, the Proverbs are a collection of wise sayings. Or a collection of sayings given to help people to be wise. Those first few chapters of Proverbs were written by Solomon to his son. I mentioned on Wednesday night that uh, there's a reason that we don't have a son named here. Because the idea that we should grasp is that the Proverbs are written to all of God's people who would accept them. They are, are written to give us all wisdom and instruction in life. And so this morning, we're in Proverbs chapter 3. I've, I've titled this sermon, The Best Life. 
And when I ask this question, what does a wise life consist of? Perhaps it would have been better English if I'd ask of what does a wise life consist? But you get the idea here. What does it look like for us to live with wisdom, to live wisely? Perhaps one of the best ways for us to wrap our heads around that is to consider what it looks like to be foolish. The Cedar Fire was one of the most destructive fires in the history of California. It burned 273,246 acres in October and November of 2003. This statistic blew me away. At one point, driven by the Santa Ana winds, the fire grew at a rate of 3,600 acres per hour. The fire killed 15 people and destroyed 2,820 buildings. The fire didn't begin with a lightning strike, a car fire, or a downed power line. The Cedar Fire began when Sergio Martinez, a novice hunter, got lost. So right in the middle of California fire season, he started a signal fire to try to get the attention of rescuers. But he quickly lost control of the fire because of the heat, low humidity, and low moisture content in the surrounding vegetation. The Cedar Fire was all started because a man acted foolishly. Now, when we say that somebody acted foolishly, that doesn't really sit real comfortably with us, does it? The Bible, or excuse me, the dictionary says that a fool is a person who acts unwisely or imprudently. The dictionary also gives these synonyms. Like, these are the top synonyms. I didn't go cherry-pick these. For fool, idiot, half-wit, nincompoop, or buffoon. I shared some of these on Wednesday night. I thought about titling this sermon, my wife and several of you urged me against it, but I thought about titling this sermon, Don't Be a Moron. But I was talked out of that because it doesn't sound very nice. And I don't want to turn everybody off before they get here. But the goal of being wise is not to be foolish. Does that make sense? Right? To some degree, we could say that our whole goal is to not live a life that is foolish or that is idiotic or that is moronic. And it's, even if those words are harsh, I'll never forget, um, I was a student pastor before I became a senior pastor here. And one of my first trips got me in trouble because in one of my first trips, I was getting ready to go and we sat all the kids down, just like Adam's going to do after church today. Adam, wherever you are, don't do what I did. But I'm going to confess to you all what I did. I sat down and I said, look, rule number one, don't be dumb. Some of the parents didn't really appreciate that. I wasn't trying to be mean, right? But I, I just said, hey, let's just, we can encompass a lot of things by saying, let's just not act in ways that are imprudent, that are improper. Folks, I think we can say with a great deal of confidence that it is foolish to light a signal fire in the middle of fire season in California, it's also foolish to do things like gamble your life savings in Vegas or to spend your paycheck on lottery tickets. But how can we avoid foolishness? How can, how can we live our best life? A life that honors God and that serves the world around us. The Proverbs are these wise sayings given for the purpose of helping people to pursue wisdom. And to live wise lives. The book of Proverbs is interesting. Because some of the sayings are dis disconnected and kind of disjointed, right? You, you can read through a whole chapter and it's just sort of stream of consciousness. Uh, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this. And they just seem to be relatively unconnected at times. But these verses in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, they fit together and they give us a good idea of what the wise life looks like. It helps us, hopefully, to live our best life, a life that honors the Lord and that is characterized by wisdom. Now, if you are a regular part of Malvern Hill, you know that I usually preach three um, points in my sermons, and sometimes four, and today we have five. I don't want you to sweat. We're going to be fine. Uh, we, we're not going to be here for two hours, I promise. Unless y'all just start like cheering for me and really, really start feeling it. You know, if that happens, then we'll keep going, but I doubt that's going to happen, right? And y'all are a tough crowd this morning. I, I don't know. I don't know if, if I, it's like, if, I don't know. Did y'all not get enough coffee this morning? I mean, it's just, you're like me. You're ready for the fall already. Is that, is that where we are, right? Yeah. All right, let's wrestle through these things together. The first thing we see in this passage of Scripture is that we should remember what we've been taught. Remember what you were taught. 
Chapter 3, verse 1, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. What does Solomon mean when he says, my teaching? My teaching. He's referring back to God's law. Now, if you doubt me, you can flip over if you want to. You can just believe me. In 2 Timothy Timothy, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, Paul refers to the gospel, not as the gospel of Jesus Christ. He refers to it as my gospel. Why would Paul call it my gospel? He's not here claiming responsibility for the gospel any more than Solomon is claiming responsibility for God's laws and teaching. Rather, in each case, there's this tacit acknowledgement that this is God's law, but these are people who have so internalized God's teaching and, 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 and grabbed onto those that they say, it's God's and it's mine. I claim it as my own because it is having such an impact in my life. Solomon's not claiming responsibility for God's law and teaching. Instead, he's saying, this isn't just God's, it's mine. God's given it to me and I want you to learn to love this law just as I have. Just as I've made it mine, he says, I want you to make it yours. He urges his son, and by extension, all of God's children, to remember the teaching, remember the commands. For some reason, we have this tendency to grow up and to begin to believe that we outgrow the things that we've been taught. We can begin to think that we've outgrown God's commandments, that somehow commandments to pursue grace, purity, Humility are only for younger people. You want to live your best life, the abundant life that Jesus promised in, in, in John chapter 10, right? I came to give you life and give it to you to, in abundance or give it to the full. Remember the teaching. Remember what you were taught. Alzheimer's and dementia are terrible diseases because they rob people of their memories. If you've had a loved one or a friend who's battled that, you know that you can just, over time, begin to see them lose the world around them. Some of you, unfortunately, have even had the experience of walking in as a a son or a daughter into your parents' room and them not even being able to call your name. But as, as sad and terrible as those diseases are, It's maybe even more sad to think that the children of God might reject wisdom, not because they're overtaken with a disease that robs them of their memories, but because they choose to forget what they were taught. That we actually convince ourselves that somehow or other we outgrow the things of the Lord. That we reach this place where we no longer need to attend to the small things of God. That that we can just... Uh, avoid an attention to purity or we can avoid an attention to to knowing and learning and, and, and observing God's word. Solomon says, remember my teaching. How many of you can remember things that you learned as a child for those of you who grew up in church? you remember those things? Some of you didn't grow up in church. What are the, the first memories you have of being taught to be a follower of Jesus? May I tell you, I can still remember songs that I learned in church. I had a text this morning from one of our folks that, uh, or excuse me, this week from one of our folks who wasn't in the sermon or in, in worship last Sunday, and they, they saw the title of the sermon, and they want to know if I pledged my allegiance to the Bible last Sunday on July the 4th. Some of y'all don't even know what that is, but if you grew up in, 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 a, in a certain church context, then, then you remember in places like Vacation Bible School learning, I, I, I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word, and will make it a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, will hide its word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Did I say that right? I got it, didn't I? You know, I, I've, not, I've not repeated that in years and years and years, but growing up in little small Zion Hill Baptist Church right there in Spartanburg, every single summer for days on end, we would recite that, that pledge. Somebody would stand, a child would stand up there. It was a big deal if you got to be the kid that held the Bible so that, 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 that we could pledge our allegiance to that. That's something I learned as a child. What, what are those things that we learned? Solomon says, don't forget it. Don't neglect it. Never lose sight of the fact that the things that you learn as children are still as true as as, as when you're adults. There's a reason why 
when, for instance, we teach music in our children. And of course, we haven't done a whole lot of that in 18 months or whatever because COVID got in the way of a lot of things we did. But we still do some children's choir stuff on Sunday nights. And one of the things that we want our children to learn are songs that are going to imprint in their brains so that one day, when maybe they don't remember anything else, when the world seems to be running away, they can remember some of those things. We want them to learn songs that are filled with the Scripture. We want them to to sing, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, present your request to God. I forgot how it goes, because apparently I didn't learn it well. But that's what I want. I want them to learn it when they're 6, 7, and 8 years old, so that even if when they're 23, 24, 25 years old, they have begun to drift away from the things of the Lord, when, when the world begins to close in on them and they say, I don't know which way to go, I hope that those things that they've been taught will come back and flood into their hearts and their minds, and they'll say, I don't need to worry about all this. I can cast my burdens onto the Lord because He cares for me. You want to live a wise life? Remember what you've been taught. Remember it. Make it an effort to remember it. The second thing this morning, cling to love and faithfulness. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. That's the way that the ESV says that. But let me read to you a way a few other translations of the Bible phrase this. The NIV says, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. The New Living Translation says, Never let loyalty and kindness leave you. Tie them around your neck as a reminder. Write them deep within your heart. um, Another version, the Berean Study Bible says, Never let loving devotion or faithfulness leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. I love the way the KJV does this. King James says, Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Well, it kind of carries some... Some power right there, doesn't it? Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the tablet of thine heart. Trust in the Lord. Cling to love and faithfulness. Do you notice that some of these even translate faithfulness there as kindness, loyalty? Do you want to live a wise life? Let not love and, or steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. This is not... This is not, most scholars believe, a reference to the fact that you shouldn't allow God's steadfast love and faithfulness to forsake you. He won't leave you or forsake you anyway. You don't have to hold on to that. You understand? He holds on to you. That's the promise that we have from God's Word. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He didn't say, if you'll hold on tight and do all the right things, I'll take care of you. He said, I won't leave, and he meant it. So when the Bible says, let not love and steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, he's, uh, Solomon's saying to his son and to us, cling to those things. Be people of loyalty, of faithfulness, of kindness, of goodness. Do you want to live the wise life? Listen, he says, be a decent human being. Be a decent human being. Be a friend. One of the ways that Jesus' enemies tried to indict him was to say that he was a what of sinners? A friend of sinners. That's what they said to get at him. And yet, for those of us who know what we are as sinners, how thankful are we that Jesus is a friend of sinners? Living a life that looks like Jesus means living a life that is characterized by love and faithfulness, by friendliness, friendship and kindness. Do, do, do the people around you look at you and go, now there is a person that will stand by their word and will stand by me. Years ago, I had a friend who just committed a grievous sin. It, it, was, it was unwise, it was, it was unintelligent, it was all the things. And what made it worse was that I had seen this coming in his life and I begged him not to do it. He did it anyway, it came to light. I'll never forget the day that I had to go to my friend and confront him in his sin, I wanted to throw up. It took everything within me not to throw up. But I'll never forget, he he looked at me and he said, I'll understand if you can't be my friend anymore. He said, Craig, I, I know who you are, I know what you do. I'll understand because this is going to be public. I, I get it. I looked at him and I said, buddy, the way I got it figured, you ain't got nobody else. If I leave you, what have you got left? Man, you've messed up. I'm not going anywhere. 
What, what might people think? What did people think about Jesus? He's a friend of, it wasn't just generic sinners. Sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, right? Jesus hanging around with all of these people. Why? Because Jesus was their friend. They weren't his project. He was their friend. Does that mean that Jesus didn't share the truth with them? Absolutely not. Jesus regularly shared the truth. Of course, Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. They couldn't help but know the truth when they were in his presence. The church should be filled with the friendliest people on planet earth. And when I say the friendliest people, I don't just... And and let me brag on y'all, okay? If you're a guest with us this morning, I'll brag on you too, even though it's true about you. But I'll brag on the rest of you. The thing that gets said about y'all from everybody who visits that talks to me is I've never felt more welcome in a church in my life. Good job. Like, great job. Some of y'all are shaking your heads. Thank y'all. It's good encouragement. Great job. But when I say that the church has got to be filled with friendliness and friendly people, I don't just mean that, hey, we need to make sure that you feel welcome when you walk in the doors of the church. I mean, we need to be the people that run in when everybody else runs out. Right? We need to be characterized not by clinging to those people who share our views and share our beliefs. We need to be characterized as those people who hang around no matter what. When's the last time somebody looked at you and said, get out of my life, and you said, sorry, I can't do that today. It turns out you haven't done anything to earn my friendship, but I'm your friend anyway. We're in this thing together to the end. When's the last time you did that? The church of Jesus Christ should be filled with that kind of people. Filled with that kind of people. The kind of people who hang around and keep on hanging around and keep on hanging around. The kind of people who show up when they were told to stay away. Hello? Why are you here? I thought you might need a friend today. There's some recent information that's come out. I know we've got to hurry because I'm going to get in this for a long time. But Friendliness is on decline in our culture. Friendship is in massive decline. Especially among men, but not exclusively among men. Friendship is in free fall. One of the things that we've really urged as a church body, and in leadership we've talked a lot about in recent months, is that we would recommit to community we've invited people to come to our church and to to experience re-experience community to re-engage with community reconnect with community folks that's what the church is supposed to be about solomon says let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you bind them around your neck write them on the tablet of your heart so you you will do what find favor and good success in the sight of god and man I've never, ever in my life had someone come to me and gripe and complain because Johnny was too good of a friend. Think about that. Has there ever been a point in time in your life when you can look back and you can say, that that person was too good of a friend to me and I hate them for it? No, but you can remember those times when life was dark and bad and there were those people who didn't run away as hard as you tried to push them out the door. Bind those things to your neck. You want that to be such a part of of your character that the whole world knows. Craig Thompson is my friend. Be a friend. Be loyal. Stick in the hard times. The wise life is characterized by those who remember, by those who cling to love and faithfulness. And third this morning, characterized by those who trust in the Lord. Perhaps nothing in this text cuts against the grain of our modern culture as much as this point. Look right here with me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Trust in the Lord. Jeremiah 17, 9 says what? The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can understand it? Is there anything 
in this passage that cuts against our modern culture more than the idea that your heart is deceitful and wicked and cannot be trusted. That rather than chasing after the desires of your heart, the Bible says we we should trust in the Lord first. That God alone has the authority to determine what is right and wrong and what is good and bad. And that just because my heart says it's okay, never makes it okay. Because even my heart will deceive me. Teenagers, I'm sorry you're not old enough to appreciate this yet. But I'm going to tell a story, and I hope that you'll remember this as you get older. Okay? Now, I, I need, this is going to be a show of hands, okay? I'm sorry if this is embarrassing. How many of you are currently married to the person you had a crush on when you were 14 years old? Oh, man, some of y'all make me so sick. I'm so jealous. It's impressive. <laughs> me, me, don't miss me. How many of y'all have zero contact with the person you had a crush on when you were 14? How many of y'all wish you didn't have any contact? I'm kidding, kidding. (laughs) You see that? Very few people, and for those of you that ruined my illustration, I'm so frustrated. (laughs) Y'all aren't that person, just hear me say that. Some of those people were married at 16, y'all are already 16, forget it. Here's what I want you to understand. Most of us can look back at middle school. And remember who you had the crush on in middle school, if you can remember it. And your heart just ached for that person. And what you look back on and go, wow, God, you had a better plan than I did. It turns out, Lord, where my heart was leading me was not where I needed to be. My heart was taking me in a bad place. My heart was taking me in a dangerous place. My heart was taking me sometimes away from the Lord. The Bible says trust in the Lord. In our culture today, people are urged to follow their own hearts, create their own own version of truth and reality, but the Bible is clear. Our hearts are untrustworthy. John Calvin said that our hearts are idle factories. Why? Because left to ourselves, we can make up things to worship, can't we? Like, we can make up all sorts of reasons to not give God the glory and the credit. Good things can happen in our lives and we can explain them away as our own abilities. Bad things can happen in our lives and we can explain it away as bad luck. We can come up with all sorts of reasons to explain everything away without giving God glory because our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts long only to bring glory to ourselves. Charles Stanley once said, To have God speak to the heart is a majestic experience, an experience that people may miss if they monopolize the conversation and never pause to hear God's responses. The opposite of trusting our heart is trusting the Lord with our whole heart. But trusting in the Lord requires quiet contemplation, time in God's Word, and a commitment to pursuing the Lord. We live in a loud culture we live in a busy culture and when I say busy I don't just mean that we're chasing after sports and jobs and all those other things I mean even when we're not busy we find something to busy our hands with we find all sorts of excuses to do anything other than to sit with the Lord How many of you are as guilty as me of finding yourself in the checkout line at the grocery store and rather than waste that two minutes, you know, maybe engaging in a conversation, maybe just standing there and being bored and being okay with it, pull your phone out and begin to look. Right? Why why do we do that? We don't want to be bored, maybe. I'm going to be honest with you. I think sometimes we do that because we're afraid somebody might try to talk to us. Sometimes we want to try to look important. Oh, I've got something really important i got to look at right here. You ain't got nothing important. Nothing's happened on Instagram in the five minutes since the last time you looked at it. Pursuing the Lord, seeking the Lord, running to God's Word and saying, God, how would you have me to live? Do we ever shut our mouths 
stop telling God what we want and take the time to ask the Lord what it is that he may want from us? When's the last time that you ever in your prayers rather than say, God, I want, I want, I want, just stopped long enough to say, Lord God, show me what you want. When's the last time that you took your your heart figuratively and laid it before the Lord and said, God, I know what my heart desires, but God, I don't know if these desires are godly and right. The wise life is constructed out of careful contemplation of the things of God. The wise life turns off the world and turns on the word of God and sees him. Fourthly this morning, not only should we trust in the Lord and cling to love and faithfulness and remember what we were taught. Fourthly this morning, we should honor God with our possessions. What's it look like to live the wise life? Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. You see that there's a promise. If you do these things, then the Lord will take care of you. Do you want to live a wise, good life? Be generous with your stuff. And remember, it's not just money. Your possessions, your money, your talents, your time. Be generous. Be the kind of person that just gives freely. Some months ago, as a church, we voted to move forward with our refocus plan. And and in August, we're going to nominate members to be a part of that team to help us to really stretch flesh across the skeleton that is that idea that was laid out there. Those four parts of how we want to make sure that we meet the needs of our church family, we want to reach our community, invest in other churches, and, and really seek to engage the nations and send out missionaries. But I, I, I want to be honest with you. If we're going to reach our community and reach the nations, it's going to require all of us doing our part. And we've got to take God's word about generosity seriously, for instance. See, the reality is we will be handcuffed in the ministry that we can do if God's people aren't willing to honor the Lord by giving freely. One of the things we talk about in our Next Steps class is I'm honest with our folks to say, hey, we've got to have have finances and resources. We're going to speak to those things when God's Word speaks to it. And the Bible does speak to the necessity of us living generous lives. What's keeping you from tithing? What keeps you from giving to the church? What keeps you from giving to the, the purposes of God? What is it? So, some of you say, well, when I get there, I will. The Bible does say give out of your wealth. And some of you say, Pastor, I don't have any wealth, so we don't have to worry about that. Right? But it also says give the first fruits. Right? So, so if you've got wealth, we want you to give out of your wealth. I would encourage you. The Bible says so. But, but if you don't have wealth, we get it. Right? Most of us don't have wealth. So the, the first fruit setting aside the tithe. And God's word ties this in with a wise life. A good life. Remember this begins with Solomon saying, My son, do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. For what? For length of days. For peace that they will add to you. And one of the things he gives right here is that we should honor the Lord with our wealth for the first fruits of your produce. Why? So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Look at what God's word says. He says, give generously. Give generously. Nobody really enjoys the the sermons on giving, right? I don't enjoy preaching them for the most part, so we're all clear. And yet God's word says that this is one of the ways that we honor the Lord. As a matter of fact, when we run to the New Testament in Jesus' words, Jesus talks about money more than he talks about hell. Because Jesus knows that what? Where our heart is, there our treasure will be also. One of the things that keeps us from being generous is when we begin to believe that our resources, our possessions, are our identity. That this is how I establish who I am. But when my identity is in Christ... When I see that he is the giver of all things, then I begin to say, not only does God get my 10%, but truthfully, God owns it all. It's all his. He's given me an opportunity to steward this. And the question that we begin to ask is not always about, hey, how can I make myself happy? But, Lord, how can I honor you with the things that you've given me? I have seen people who were poor to be very, very stingy. I've seen people who were rich that were very, very stingy. I've also seen people who didn't hardly have two pennies to rub together to be willing to give the shirt off of their back because it brought glory to the Lord. I've seen people who were incredibly wealthy to be willing to give and give and give to the things of the Lord. 
You see, generosity is not characterized by how much you have, but how much you're willing to give. There was a youth pastor one time, a call, I said, hey, hey, so-and-so, we, we'd really like it. We, we're trying to do this gathering for our teenagers. Could, could we have them at your house? Well, they can come over, but they can't come inside because I don't want them scratching my floors. You know what? I think we'll find somewhere else to go. You understand? I, I, I think that we, we, we can just find somewhere else to go. So when we're talking about generosity, just understand we're talking about a heart here. A heart that says, Lord, what you've given me is yours to be used for your glory and for the good of the world. And so I just ask you, what keeps you from tithing? If you do tithe, great. But if you don't, what keeps you from tithing? Why? Do you have a biblical reason or, honest and truly, have you just never considered it? Has it never occurred to you that this was a wise thing, a godly thing to do, that you would give to your church so that the kingdom of God might be expanded? One of the cool things that God's done in our church, He continues to do. Y'all, we've got people, I don't even know how many guests we got here this morning. I'm so happy y'all are all here. Um, but on a given Sunday, a third of our congregation is 18 or under. Okay, So if there's 300 people here today, I can, I can guarantee you that 100 of them are 18 years old or under. Um, here's the problem. They don't write checks. No, most of them don't. For those of you that do, I'm really glad. Um, but they don't. How are we going to reach not only those teenagers and children that we have today, but the ones that we're going to have tomorrow? We, it's going to cost us money. What are we going to do to make sure that there's a, a church that can minister to your children and grandchildren and, and, and to my grandchildren? We've got to do the things and take the steps. So honor God with your possessions. But again, I, I, I urge you, I encourage you to tithe. The Bible speaks of tithing over and over and over again. But I don't want us to get stuck that it's just that, right? Do you honor the Lord with your, your, your time? Do you honor the Lord with your possessions? Do you make your home available and open for hospitality? We're talking about friendliness. Are you just friendly at church? Or are you friendly enough to actually open your front door and say, Hey, you're welcome in this place. Are you the kind of person that opens up your cabinet and says, Here, you're welcome to eat here. That's honoring the Lord. Honor God with your possessions. And then finally this morning, in accept God's discipline. And this is actually going to tie us all the way back to all the other things. Work with me. Some of you look like you're, you're glassing on me. Don't, don't give me that glassy look. Stay with me. Accept God's discipline. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. When God corrects you, let me ask you this. How do you handle it? It's really appropriate. I, and I, God, God knows more than we do. I probably wouldn't have written this this way, but God knew what we needed. He talks about generosity. He talks about giving and tithing. And then he goes, hey, by the way, don't despise the Lord's discipline. How many of you, when I began talking about money, something inside you sort of rose up within you? Who's he think he is? That's my money. Don't tell me what to do. And then God says, don't despise the Lord's discipline. You go, who's he think he is? Telling me what to do. And I'm here to tell you, I'm not talking about me. I'm telling you what God's word says. God disciplines those whom he loves. Not all discipline is negative. You understand that? Not all discipline is negative. We, he doesn't say he punishes those whom he loves. He disciplines those whom he loves. Discipline is not always a correction. Discipline is sometimes an encouragement, a shift in direction. How do you handle it when God corrects you? Do you sulk? Do you pitch a fit? Do you whine? One of our family verses, I think it needs to be one of our life verses probably, is, <clears throat> is this, do everything without arguing or complaining. And the, the verse just left. Is that Philippians 2.14, right? I hope so, Yeah. Do everything without arguing or complaining. Do you know how often that gets repeated in our house? I mean, Angela says it to me like 37 times a day. Over and over we say this to our children, but how often do we need to look in the mirror and say, do it all without arguing or complaining? What do you do when God's word speaks against you? Do you go, ah, oh, I don't want to do that? Well, none of us really do that, do we? But sometimes we... We, we start on an endeavor to explain it away or to defend our actions. Well, the Lord didn't mean that for me. Well, that wasn't exactly what God meant to say was God disciplines those whom he loves, however. And, and, and it's, it's not all some sort of cosmic beatdown. Most of God's discipline comes from where? Interaction with God's word. 
interaction with God's word. For instance, when we think about tithing, as we just did, if you're not a generous person, if you do not tithe, then God's word issues a correction to you or even a rebuke. Now, when I read those words to you, do you you cross your arms and begin thinking about how you're going to trash the preacher when you walk out? I mean, seriously, like, well, all he wants to talk about is money. If this is the first time you've ever been here, then you could convince yourself that the only thing I ever want to talk about is money. Okay? If you've been here more than like 15 times, then you'll know this is the first time and 15 times that I've talked about money, and it probably won't happen again for a while. We talk about it when it comes up in God's Word. But when you hear it, do you cross your arms and get angry? There's a lot of y'all here, so it's hard for me to know, but I can tell you this. There are things that I preach on sometimes, and I can see the anger rising on the people's faces. I can watch body language. They cross their arms, and they glare at me. Tithing is usually one of those things. When we talk about it, do you, do you go, wow, God, maybe I need to change my life? Or do you say, well, if he knew my situation, things would be different? How do you respond when you're corrected? How do you respond when someone points out your sin? How do you respond when God's word points out your sin? Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you or be a friend. How often do we get, well, he, if he knew so-and-so, he wouldn't say that. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Well, I don't want bad company corrupts good character, Craig, so I'm not going to hang out with those people. Easy, easy. How often do we allow God's word to change us, to redirect us, to guide us? We should accept God's discipline. Why? You ready for this? Because he disciplines those whom he loves. I've coached a little bit of football in my day. I've not coached a whole lot, but I've coached enough to know this. You start in August and you're sweating so much and your life is miserable and you just want to go crawl in a hole somewhere. And you're giving all you got to these kids and you're trying to coach them up. And you got a handful of kids that really just couldn't care less about being there. They want to wear a jersey or they're making mama happy or whatever it is. But you're giving all you got the entire month of August. September rolls around. The season's really beginning to wear on you. And what you find out is that there's two or three kids every single season that aren't going to do anything you say. They're not going to be changed. They're just there. And the reality is you reach a point where you're, you're giving everybody the general things, but there's only some that are getting your specific attention because some of them aren't interested in it. God disciplines those whom he loves, and he disciplines those who are willing to be changed. I've never done CrossFit, but I had someone once tell me the joy they experienced in a CrossFit class when their instructor walked over to them and gave them a heavier weight. You can imagine you're sweating, you're trying not to die, and the instructor walks over and goes, I think you can do more. Here, let me trade your kettlebell for this bigger one. Your heart doesn't respond with joy in that moment, right? I mean, some of you might. You're hardcore. But generally, we go, oh. But if we trust that person, we say things like, they they want what's best for me. They're actually trying to make me better. Do you love God's law? Do you love God's discipline? It is for your good and His glory. Watch this. Listen. He knows what you need better than you do. He knows what I need better than I do. And when God says, don't forget my commandments, He knows that I need them. When God says that I am to be loyal and friendly and trustworthy, He knows that I need that just as much as my neighbors need that. Right? When, when, when the Bible teaches me that I should not trust my own heart, but I should trust in the Lord, the Bible teaches me that because God knows that my heart will lead me into wickedness. God's word is a warning. Turn, Craig. Stop. When God's word teaches me that I should tithe, it's because God knows that if I will manage my money biblically, it is for my good and His glory. He knows what I need and He knows what you need. And when we run to God's word and we find it speaking against us, 
disciplining us, redirecting us. The question we ultimately have to ask ourselves is, do we trust Him? Do we trust Him? The question we began with this morning is this. What is a wise life? What does it consist of? Can I tell you that the answer is that a wise life is one that consists in a trusting the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is what the Bible says. It's the foundation upon which all of these other things are built. The wise life is often a life of delayed gratification. Our best life may be a few weeks or months or even years ahead. But the question is, do we trust the Lord? Are you willing to trust the Lord when it's uncomfortable? Are you willing to trust the Lord when it hurts? Are, are you willing to trust the Lord when it costs you everything? What if it costs you all that you have? Are you willing to trust Him? What does a wise life consist of? Love. Loving God's teaching. Remembering God's teaching. Loving others. Trusting the Lord above our own hearts. Honoring God with our wealth. Accepting God's discipline. Along the way, there may be more specific things, but if you'll structure your life around these five imperatives, you will find it possible to walk with wisdom. Trust is hard. And trust is harder for some of you than it is for others, right? If, if you grew up in, a, in, a, in a, a stable, good home with a mom and dad who always did what they said they were going to do, with brothers and sisters and other family members that came around you, then, then you find it easier to trust because you, you, you saw this pattern develop. And you go, people will actually do what they say they're going to do. And so when, when people, for instance, speak of God as a loving Heavenly Father, you go, yes, that's exactly what He seems like to me. If you grew up in one of those harder homes where there wasn't that group of people that you could trust, and I begin to refer to God as a loving Heavenly Father, you scratch your head and you said, that doesn't make any sense to me. Because I've never known anybody who didn't let me down. Trust is hard. Folks, can I tell you that when you begin to trust Him, He will never let you down. The wise life is a life that trusts the Lord to hold the line no matter what may come. Trust the Lord to hold you to guide you, to comfort you, to lead you. Some of you are here today, and you don't have to tell me, but you know it to be true. You know that the reason you don't trust the Lord is because you don't really trust anybody, and you convince yourself that the only hope for your life is for you to do it. And so because you don't really trust, here's what happens. It's the opposite of the wise life, right? I'm not going to listen to God's commandments because my commandments are right. I, I'm not going to bind trust and faithfulness around my neck because I need to push everybody away from me because I can't trust them. Trust the Lord with all my heart? No, my heart, my instincts, my ideas are the only hope that I have. Tithe, be generous. I've got to be out for number one because that's all that I have in this world. Trust God's discipline. I trust nobody. Our sin separates us from God and the people that we love. And our foolishness will do the same thing. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. It's what Psalm 14 1 says. The fool says in his heart there is no God. 
Some of you might not ever come out and say it out loud with your lips that there is no God, but with your life, in your heart of hearts, you suggest that there is no God who is to be trusted. And so you, your heart has created an idol factory, hasn't it? And it's set you up as the king of your life. And the life that you're living is the exact opposite of one that I've preached this morning. I want you to know that if that's you, today can be the day that things begin to change. Today can be the day that you look around and you say, you know what? I've been leaning on me for a long, long time. And it's left me broken and alone and scared and hurt and angry. Some of you might say, Craig, I don't even know if I believe all this, but I know that I'm tired of living the way that I live today. And if trusting the Lord is the first step I need to take in rescuing me from the darkness that surrounds me, then I'm willing to take that step today. Kevin's going to come and play. Our praise team's going to sing. And as they do, I'm going to stand down front. And I want to extend this invitation to you. If this is your first time or your hundredth time being with us here at Malvern Hill, if you've spent your life depending upon you and rejecting God's guidance, I want to invite you to come this morning to me. I would love to pray with you. Look, I don't know the pain that some of you have gone through. So that's what I need to be honest about, right? I don't know. we got veterans in here that have seen things that I can't understand, and they still can't wrap their brain around it. And it's caused a lot of pain, and they can't trust. we got folks that grew up in hard places, and they can't trust. Can I tell you that you can? God can heal those broken hearts. He can mend those wounds. There's hope at the cross. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But the child of God says in his heart, I can't do this alone. And God, if you're real, change me. Would you like to take that step today, that first step towards hope and healing? However it is the Lord's at work in your life. We're going to stay in just a moment. We're going to sing. And when we do, I want to invite you to come. You can come up here and pray. You can come and I'd love to pray with you or have somebody else to pray with you. But we want to see God work in your life. Let me pray for us. Father God in heaven, I pray that you would lead God, move among us. Father, for those that are hurting today, that find it hard to trust, I pray that today, Lord God, you would begin to soften those hearts, to break down those barriers that today could be a first step toward a life that trusts you, that honors you, that is changed by you. I pray that the light of the gospel would break into dark places, that Jesus would reign supreme. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Stand with us this morning as we sing.